closer to Fry. Runner on the move. That ball is going to fall in the gap and go to the wall. Fry takes a look. He's going to stop it first and complete the cycle. An RBI single and a piece of Blue Jay history for Jeff Fry. Hey folks, Jeff Fry here, former Major League Baseball player and your certified hitting guru. This is episode number six of the Shigon Nation podcast. Today, our guest is my old teammate, Nomar Garcia-Para. Running things from the Shigon Nation bunker is my producer, John Moore. You may know him as the recliner nerd from the Rangers Nation podcast. What's up, John? Man, I went out and tried to hit golf balls today. Hey, I'm tell you what, I'm excited about this today. Nomar Garcia-Para is someone that obviously anybody that is a a major league baseball fan knows that name knows Nomar. When you told me you were going to get him on here. I mean, I got so excited. I mean, just one of the best to ever play the game, but it's not about how good you are. It's how you carry yourself on the field and all of that. And just one of the classiest guys on the field. And then he goes and marries a, 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 a superstar athlete uh, and a wife too. So, you know, they're just all around good guys. So I've been excited for this one. I can't wait. Yeah. Some guys get all the breaks, man. I so, tell you, what. you know, that's Nomar. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show my friend, Nomar Garcia-Para. What's up, Nomi? Frito, what's up, my brother? How are you, man? I'm doing great. Yes, I did marry way over my skis. Let's just see. <laughs> we can get that out right now for sure. Uh, yes, oftentimes I am known as Mr. Ham, and I am okay with that. Yes, sir. <laughs> Mr. Ham, well, you, I mean, you grew up playing soccer too, right? I did. Yeah, I, I played baseball and soccer since I was five years old, all the way. I played soccer till my senior year in high school. And I could have played it in college, had uh, offers to do it, but I knew baseball was my route. It was either run 90 minutes or run 90 feet. I chose the right way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you got to jog those 90 feet a whole lot more than I did. I know that. <laughs> well, I want to talk about your career a little bit. Um, you were drafted in the first round, 12th overall pick in 1994 by the Boston Red Sox out of Georgia Tech University. You made your major league debut on August 31st, 1966, which just so happens to be my birthday. In 1997, you had an amazing year winning rookie of the year. You were an all-star, eighth in MVP voting. You hit 306 with 209 hits, scored 122 runs, 44 doubles, 11 triples, 30 home runs, and had 98 RBIs from the leadoff spot. I know that because I hit behind you a bunch that year. In 98, you had an even better year, hitting 323 with 195 hits, 111 runs scored, 37 doubles, eight triples, 35 home runs, and 122 RBIs. And somehow, you were not an all-star in 1998. <laughs> I mean, how does, yeah, that yeah. E how does that even happen? Hey, I made Hargrove pay for that after that one. You know, he, he, you know, you have all those shortstops at the time we were, uh, when we were playing and, you know, he put the, uh, he took Biscal because they were in the world series the year before. And I understand he took his guy, but I didn't, I didn't make it that year. That was one of my better years. You come in second in MVP and you don't make the all-star team. <laughs> See, I, I just figured it was uh Jeter and a rod. I know it was you three guys were 
hands down the best three shortstops in the American League, and they seems like they took two every year. But I didn't realize they took the scale over you that year, also. Yeah, they took the scale, um, and man, man, you had him, um, and then you had Miguel Tejada. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just there were some studs uh, in the American League, and I mean, there's studs now in the game playing shortstop as well. But yeah, back then, uh, that's what made it fun. Yep, yep. All right, so in 1999, you won the batting title, hitting 357, and followed that up by hitting 372 in 2000. The highest single season batting average for a right-handed batter in the post-war era, and, wow. and you became the first right-handed hitter to win the batting title in consecutive seasons since Joe DiMaggio, who accomplished this amazing feat in 1939 and 1940. 60 friggin' years later. That's pretty incredible. Man. Holy cow. That's, wow. You know, that's, I'm a byproduct of my team. I think uh, oftentimes uh, people look at that, and uh, I always say just, winning rookie of the year winning uh you know you know i didn't go out there to try to win awards winning by itself but when you get them you really realize you're a byproduct of your team because even after that uh, even if you look at some of the numbers they get misleading uh but a lot of those numbers get misleading uh, but factor in is who you have around you and how you have to adjust you're way too humble as good as you were, dude. It's kind of making you me don't, sick. You don't even realize <laughs> that we were just in awe of you in the dugout. You, I'm not joking, Ed. I'm not just saying that because you're on the show, but we were just watching you going, freaking Nomar, dude. He just he just hits a rocket every time he comes up to the plate, and it's like it didn't matter either. And, and one of the things about you that was so amazing to me, um, in 2000, I played with you with the Red Sox, and you won the batting title. And I blasted Duquette in the paper and got traded to the Rockies and went to the Rockies and played with Todd Helton, who won the batting title in the National League. So I played with two, uh, the batting title winner in each league that year. And you guys were completely different style of hitters. And, you know, he was more of a hunt the fastball kind of guy. But I've never seen anybody, and I've said this many times, I've never seen anybody that could go up to the plate and be on anything the pitcher throws on the first pitch like you could. It was incredible. You know, there's a, yeah, it was, I, w- I was ready. That's, I think people have this misconception. Everybody's like, oh, he's just aggressive. He's a free swinger. He's all that stuff. Um, I wasn't that. I was just, I felt when you step in the batter's box, you better be ready to hit. And I always had a, a plan on what I was trying to achieve. The game told me what type of hitter I was supposed to be in the batter's box. Uh, I think that's one of the things, if I look back on my career, I'm most proud of was I felt like I, sh- I could hit anywhere in the lineup and make an impact. And I didn't have to be, I didn't have to start there, but the game told me the type of hitter I was supposed to be when I stepped in the batter's box. So I was trying to accomplish that from the very first pitch. Why do I need to wait around? Um, you know, obviously now, you know, I was always getting criticized. It was always this, but I mean, I'm sure we're going to be talking about numbers and all of this stuff later and stats, but nobody wrote still people don't understand now to this day, you and I, when we played, even when we played the batting, uh, batting average in the major league baseball throughout major league baseball, still like a third, 333 average. It hasn't changed since we played to this day. It still is on the first pitch. So I'm like, am I missing something? Because nobody talks about this <laughs> yet. So it was ready, ready to, accomplish it uh i've oftentimes looked in um, zones i didn't really look for a particular pitch i knew a zone i knew my strength i knew my weaknesses at the time i knew how they were trying to get me out and i had to get the job done 
Well, you did it pretty dang well. And I just, <laughs> I, I just know the kind of hitter I was, I go up there and I, you know, I was a guy who was supposed to get on base and I didn't go. I always felt like I, I hardly ever swung at the first pitch. You remember that, but it's yeah. like, if maybe if you grooved a fastball first pitch, I'd, I'd swing at it, but there's no way I could go off the home plate and hit a hanging curveball on the first pitch of the game, like you or a slider or knuckleball and it's just like how does he do this how's he always ready for what they throw and i was i to this day i'm still amazed by that well well i appreciate it, but like I, I think it was just um it's really like i said preparation i you know some people uh, and you might have been out here when they say oh I, ha I just wanted to see one i mean i even hear kids now say i wanted to see one i'm like weren't you seeing it on the side mm -hmm. <laughs> weren't you figuring yeah. that out what do you want to do you know and uh and i and i think um that's where that was, that was just my mentality. And probably it's also my father's fault because one thing I hate, it's funny when you were reading those stats out um, more, I think the more impressive or the one that I like more was I struck out way too much my rookie season. And I wanted to, that I did not like that. And those started to change over the years too. Walking back to the dugout with a strikeout sucks. It's awful. So <laughs> that was, so I didn't want to, why am I, if, uh, it's not three strikes and you're out for me. I got three chances to accomplish the job. So I'm going to utilize every single chance I get. So that very first chance, there it is, get the job done. Yeah. Well, your, your rookie year, you, you walked 35 and struck out 92 times. And then then 99, 2000, you had more walks and strikeouts. You just don't, you just don't see that anymore. And you only had, <laughs> 39 strikeouts and 595 plate appearances. You know, now it's, I mean, everybody strikes out a hundred times. Yeah. I, 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 I would go batty and lose my mind. I mean, that, I mean, you look at it, the, the rookie year when I had close to a hundred strikeouts, I also was, I had over 670, I think plate appearance, close to 700 plate appearances. I think that 684. That <laughs> yeah. So that it was, it was up there and, you know, it was, I was leading off. There was a lot to learn as well, but uh, yeah, I did not. The worst thing to me was, was striking out. There's, there's only a couple of times, there's only a few times situations where I would accept the strikeout, I guess, so to speak. I never really accepted it, uh, but there are times where the game, for example, if there is a, if there's a man on, you know, either bases loaded or first and second, uh, and that's a tying run and it's late in the game out there at second base and there's one out. I have to let a ball down in the zone go. Guy has a sinker. He, I got to give him the bottom part of the zone. I have to look up because I can't afford to hit into a double play. I got to give myself a chance and I have to at least let make sure the other guy behind me has to have a chance. So if you hurt a pitcher and you happen to dot three balls down in the zone on me and you got to, I got to tip my hat. That's the only time to get, but Outside of that, I'm, I'm not going to strike out. I don't, I hate it. <laughs> no, I always, I always tell people the, the two worst things in my mind you could do on a baseball field were striking out and making an error. I hated making yeah. an error. I was mad till the next game. I was like, that's one thing I cannot do being the type of player that I was, was make an error. And, you know, we, there's not much talk about your defense, but I played alongside of you. And, and I mean, when that when you'd go in the hole and do that running throw thing and, and throw a two seamer to Mo Vaughn and handcuff him from across the field, or when you oh actually it's on the choppers up the middle when you came up on the grass and you know Mo Vaughn was just going oh my god uh, here comes yeah, a hundred mile around. an hour sinker. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know it's so so funny is uh, 
you know, late in my career, I ended up going and moving over to first base. And, and I knew, and I remember getting to spring training super early. I was, I was supposed to play in the World Baseball Classic. It's going to represent Mexico. I was so excited. And I ended up bailing out because they wanted me to play shortstop. And I needed to play first. I need this. I owe that to the team I was going to. It was giving me this opportunity. I owe that to the Dodgers. But I remember as I'm learning first base, I remember going, I, I got to call all the first basemen I ever had and apologize to them. I really <laughs> have to say sorry. You know, my Tony Clark, you know, Mo Vaughn, Jose, all, I'm so sorry about the nasty stuff I threw over there to first base. Yeah, because you had a sinker, bro. You know, you, you didn't have the right over the top, you know, the the perfect Jeter or A-Rod throw. It was a little lower three-quarter, and that thing had some movement on it. Okay, yeah, it so, so I got to ask you this, Jeff. So you were you were turning double plays with him. Did the ball yeah. coming to you at second do the same thing? Was it moving all around? Not really. Not really. I mean, if he would go in the hole sometimes, but I mean, we got to know each other pretty well. So I, we knew what to expect. And you just, yep. I mean, it's nice when you can play with someone for a while and you get, oh yeah, oh yeah, you get accustomed to, to you know, what the feeds are like and where the ball is going to be. And I mean, I think one, one year we led the league in double plays turn. So that's probably because yeah. we had a, a lot of men on base. <laughs> I'd tell you, I, you know, I remember, I, I don't know if you remember this, uh, is another funny story that has to do with a double play is, um, right before, right before the game started, um, Jim Corsi ended up putting like your cereal bowl or something like that in your locker and piss you. Oh, you're like, what? Like almost acting like you don't clean up after yourself and you just stepped away. And then you came and you were going to clean it up, but whatever. And you were so pissed and so angry. And then there's a man on first and second. We're coming, we're playing. Uh, I think it's the white Sox, and you got, he's coming in and they just intentionally walked like Frank Thomas for Albert Bell. And, you know, and he comes in, I mean, it is a tight ball game. It's a big game. And we're at the, we're at there and you have the rosin bag and it's in your hand and skips talking to us. And Jim's like, all right, guys, Hey, turn one for me. All right. You got that. And he looked for the rosin bag and he said, and you just looked at him and threw it and avoided him and said, I ain't doing nothing for you. And he just stood there like, Oh, great. I have great. I don't have a second baseman. And he looked at me and he was like, Hey, know me. Uh, and I said, sorry, I got to stick with my second baseman. Man. <laughs> I got, it's, my, it's my partner, man. And he just was like, uh, great. I don't have a middle infield, <laughs> have my back. And now I have to face Albert Bell. Albert. And then Albert hit a ball, a chopper in the hole to my right. I backhand, I reel around. You take it at second base. You get taken out. We turned this most amazing double play. And he was so fired up. You're like, that wasn't for you. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I wrote that on my, on my notes. I was like, what about the Jim Corsi story? Friggin' Corsi. Actually what happened was he was eating his cereal and I had two cups of metric setting there. You know, we used to do the metrics mm. and stuff. Yeah. And so, yes. and Corsi was like in, you know, early morning we're not used to getting up early and i'm like pushing a cereal bowl away from him and messing with him and he goes backhands both of my metrics drinks all over my uniform i was already oh, in God. full uni and i'm just like oh corsey and he's like all apologizing so uh, when i when he when i was i was like almost like tanner from the bad news bears i had the rosin <laughs> i had let me have that i was like <laughs> know me yeah. know me you got to get him get him know me he goes no nope, gotta stick with my guy he's like oh crap <laughs> and then we turn on the next pitch the first pitch was this unbelievable yeah. double play oh i'll never forget that too of course he was so excited that was awesome uh, good times love it yeah oh, so 
the first time I ever saw you um, play was in 1996 when you got your September call up. And it was pretty evident that you were ready for the big leagues um, just by what you did in September. I think you had four home runs and 16 RBIs. And, um, but do you remember that spring training when they announced that you were going to be the starting shortstop and what happened with Val and all that garbage? Yeah, I oh, I totally <laughs> remember. I, I remember, I remember uh, Jimmy Skip calling me and he's like, Hey, know me. He's like, Yeah, he goes, uh, I'm gonna announce tomorrow you're gonna be our starting shortstop. And uh, <laughs> I go, All right, yeah, thanks. And he goes, I don't want you to come in, <laughs> I want you to take the day. <laughs> I'm like, Well, I want to work out. Like, no, right. if you're gonna do it, get in early. He goes, Because I'm gonna announce it and it's gonna be, and I don't know how. Val's going to take this and everything. And then like, I don't think Val came in for like two or three days or something. He was not happy, you know? And, uh, but I'll tell you the one thing about all that and with people, and I still see Val, Val was always so great to me, gracious and good to me. And he even told me after that, look, I'm not mad at you. This is nothing to do with you. There's nothing with you do coming and taking my position. It was more about, he goes, just, he didn't like, apparently, I don't know what the message is or how he got or what it was handled. That's the only thing he didn't like. And he never, ever showed anything against me or anything like that. He was always there supporting me and helping me. And I always appreciate that from him. Well, he was a pro man, you know, and yeah. I mean, everybody knew it was time for yeah. you to take over at shortstop and you know, but what nobody knows is that um, I was the second baseman, Val shortstop, and Tim Naring at third. So now, yeah. you know, Nomar's the shortstop. It's like, all right, you know, Val talks about having a press conference. We're like, Val, Cal Ripken didn't have a press conference when I moved into third base. What are you doing? Right. And, and I'm sitting there going, all right, so now where's Val going to play? And they're like, oh, Val's going to play second. I'm like, well, friggin' I'm the one who's getting hosed here. I'm going to the bench and he's going to have a press conference. You know, we got Tim Naring at third and, and that's the way the season started out. And, and, um, unfortunately Timmy got hurt yeah, pretty early in the season. And so I don't know why they did this move, but they moved me to third base and keep Val at second. And I'm like, I've never played third in my friggin' life. And, and I was throwing stuff in the stands and they're like, Hey, Fry, what do you think? Uh, how would you rate your, uh, your defense at third base? And I said, somewhere between Ed Sprague and Tony Fernandez, <laughs> just not very good. <laughs> and then they finally got wise and moved about a third and he was a great third baseman. Then I what? moved back to second and, but there was like a week, week and a half where I was playing third. And I was like going to the field going, God, my, we got it. Like Chris Hammond pitching today throwing 80 we got the freaking cleveland indians and i'm i'm playing shallow left field with my outfielders club at third base just trying not to embarrass myself val, val i'll tell you the fun val here i am you know every time you get a third baseman i know sure i was always telling them hey don't worry about me you know get everything you can you know i i won't i won't get mad whatever and val looked at me he's like listen he says any ball to my left he goes, I'm not getting it. He goes, people didn't come here to see John Ballantin go to his left and make the play and throw to first base. They came to see Nomar go to his backhand, do that jump spin move and throw <laughs> over there and, to, and get everybody out by a couple of steps. He goes, so 
you have everything. I'm not going to move at all for you. I'm like, great. I don't even have a third baseman that'll support me and everything. He's like, nobody came to see me. They came to see you. <laughs> I remember, I remember Milwaukee one time I'm playing third and there's this, a chopper and I come in try to barehand it and, and didn't make the play. And I think they gave me an air and I go in the dugout and Val's look, I was like, man, just lay back on that ball a little bit, field it cleanly. And if you throw in the dude safe, at least you don't get an error. I was like, really? <laughs> I'm trying to get the dude out. I ain't trying to not make an error. But oh, he's so funny. He was funny. He used to corner me in my locker. He knew in Val. And I love Val. I, I mean, I played with Val in the Jayhawk League before the Red Sox. And when you knew when Val wanted to talk about his ABs that night, you had a good 20 minutes of sitting there listening. It's like, all right, so my first step back, he was, I was thinking slider. But I was like, well, wait a minute. He just threw this last two to heater. So, and then I'm sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh, for 20 minutes. But I, I had to listen. He was my friend, yeah. my teammate, you know. He uh, had to get it yeah. off his chest. It, it, and of course. And, I mean, I miss that when you – after the games. And it's crazy how later in my career that that didn't happen quite as often was the sitting around and talking the game with your teammates like that in the locker. Um, it was just like, all right, you corner that, or you're just sitting there. And, you know, I was a rookie with all you veterans and you guys were always so good. Hey, Rook. Yes, sir. What do you need? Stick around. Stay. Okay. And it was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to learn. So I, I was always learning something. So those, those, unfortunately, you don't even see that's not as prevalent. I don't think in the game. And, and those are some of the best times. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, I think some of it, and it, uh, I, I think just a different mentality now. It's, uh, hey, get the game in and go. All right, I got it. There's the game. Get my work done. Start start thinking about uh, recovery for tomorrow. Go. Um, whatever it is. Uh, hurry up. And I don't know if some of the, when I was like, hey, it's another way to avoid the media because the media is always in there afterwards too. And there it's like, hey, I can just get out of here. Or once they're done, go. I. And, and, but there was media in there for us too. So I don't, I, I can't use that as probably a reason more because we just waited when they were done. We just stuck around. Um, uh, but I, I don't, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I see some of these guys that, and now as a broadcaster, I'm coming down and there's guys who are already dre- undressed and just as quick as I just was coming down from the broadcast booth after the game. And I see some of these guys, I'm like, how did you get out so fast? What, a, wow, did you shower? Am I missing something? You know? Mm-hmm. But hey, listen, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's their prerogative. And, and I guarantee you there are still some that are probably sticking around later and talking the game and, and kudos to them. Yeah, I think maybe sometimes we stuck around too long, a few of us. <laughs> <laughs> that too. But I, I, I don't that, know. That's I don't... also changed a little bit. That also yeah. might have changed a little bit yeah. too. What's in the locker that can allow you to stick around and stay a little bit I don't, is no longer allowed in the locker. Okay, so John, a lot of time, most, most of the times after the game, Guys will sit around and have a beer or two if guys like to have a beer after the game. You know, it helps relieve the stress of the game sometimes, sure. helps you yeah. relax. So my first game in Boston as a Red Sox player, I play the game and I go, where's the beer? And they said, oh, we're not allowed to have beer in the locker room. I was like, what? It's like, yeah, so-and-so got in trouble last year, so they banned alcohol from the locker room. I was like, Damn, if I'd have known that, I would never even sign with the Red Sox. Hey, no way. <laughs> I, had, I had three or four beers in my locker every game in Texas. You know, you go in there, there's little ice chest in there, sit next to your yep. locker. I was like, man, this is going to be tough. So I got to ask you this, Nomi. 
So what was it like to be the best player on a team like the Red Sox and have the entire city of Boston just love you, man? Um, except, first of all, I never saw myself as the best player uh, on the team. I just, I never, I never, I never, I never hate the word best. I mean, like I said, I really am. You're a byproduct of your team. You really are. They, and I, I think that's also missed in this game is really understanding how to hit around your team. I had to become a different hitter based on who I was sitting around. Listen, I won those batting titles a lot of times because I batted fourth. People don't understand this game and why, how certain, how it can also affect your average when the number five hitter behind me changes. It changed that year. They didn't know who was going to hit behind me. So I also knew when I was going to walk, I knew I was going to get pitched to with a man on second and there's less than two outs and a base open at first. I knew I was going to get pitched around at times because, and, and, but then, you know, everybody's like, Oh, what happened? Yeah. You got hurt. You got hit your wrist. And that was one thing. And now you're not the same hitter. I said, well, my, your average, not the same. Yeah. Cause I had a dude named Manny Ramirez come in and now he was my teammate. He's batting fourth. I'm batting third. I'm going to get a lot more at, uh, at bats. I'm going to get a lot more pitches. My average is going to go down, but guess what went up? My home runs, my RBIs went up because they're going to pitch to me. They ain't going to pitch to that guy. He's a stud too. So mm -hmm. that changes things. So somebody say, uh, I was, I don't ever see that. I was a part of something. And that's really uh, how I felt. And as far as the city is concerned, I'm, I retired a Red Sox for a reason, you know, uh, after all getting traded, all that stuff. And I still had to put the uniform one more time and say I retired as a Red Sox, not for ownership, not because ownership come and go. I did it for the fans because the way they still treat me to this day, they embraced a kid from freaking Whittier, California as one of their own. It was unbelievable. They just embraced me. It was, I'm not gonna lie, also a kid from Whittier, California. It's overwhelming. It was different. I mean, it's, uh, it was definitely a culture shock. It was definitely uh, uh, all that attention was just different for me. That's because that's not who I am. Um, but at the same time, grateful uh, at how they, they treated me. And I think they appreciated just, everybody's like, how come they love you? I said, because I am them. I was, I'm, I, like the people in Boston, they go work hard, they're hardworking. They go and they come back and they look at baseball as their time to escape. And sometimes just kind of escape. And then they get back up, they have a routine. They get their Dunkin' Donuts, they go to work, they work hard, they come back. They eat, they watch a game, the same thing again. That's what they do. Well, that's what I did. I had, I mean, you know me, I was routine oriented and you guys were scared mm -hmm. of me and you didn't want to mess with that. But I was the same thing. I just wanted to go. I just wanted to play hard, wanted to work hard. And that was it. And just come back. No flash. No, I just, that was it. I was trying to win every single day. What do I got to do today to win? What can I do to help? I am them. You know, I didn't, yeah, no media, all that stuff. And how it wasn't viewed, but I wasn't there for that. I was just there to go out there and play hard for uh, the people who came to watch us, the guys who were playing next to me. I owed that to them. And ultimately, it was also for myself to just go out there and be uh, proud of what I did today to give it my all. Yeah, I can tell you when I, when I played for the Rangers and then went to Boston, it was totally different, man. I mean, I loved my time in Texas, drafted as a Rangers player, but people ask me all the time, you know, what was it like playing in Texas compared to Boston? I was like, well, in Texas, we could be losing 10 to nothing in the fourth inning and the crowd on a Sunday and the crowd will go crazy. And that's because the Cowboys just scored a touchdown. I said, but in Boston on a Wednesday <laughs> night, we lose a one run game. Everybody's going to work pissed off tomorrow. 
Yes. It's, it training. was life or death. It's but life it or was. death. It, it was life or death. It was, I remember D-Lo, there were times, D-Lo, he said after a game, if he had a tough game, he'd go after the game and go to a restaurant and the whole restaurant go, boo, or he'd walk into a bar and they'd boo him, you know? Like, I mean, it's, it was, it was, yeah, it was definitely, it's definitely, a, there's a passion there that's uh, another level, but that's what also, uh, it makes it great. Mm-hmm. Did they ever boo you? Uh, when I made a mistake, yes, and I expected it. You know, it's funny is, you know how all these walk-up songs and everything, these hitters, and even, even at Boston, somebody like, hey, do you want to have a song? I never wanted a walk-up song when I played in Boston. Never wanted one. I always wanted to know how the fans felt about me that every time I walked up. I don't ever feel like whenever I walked up, I ever got booed. Or the next day, if they booed me, because I, I booted a couple, cost them, I, and they had their, like, I was booing myself louder than they probably were, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the next day I wanted to see how they felt. Cause I'll, I'll tell you, I never, one of the things that always, um, really stuck with me and probably also my reluctance actually with the media and stuff at the time was one of the biggest mentors in my career influence was Mo Bond, you know, big Mo. I mean, he Love took Mo. me under his wing. He took me, he took me under the wing before I was even in the big leagues, when I was in double, I worked one of his camps and he was talking to me there one time. So he heard about me, he's like, come here, we're going to talk. And then when I play, he taught me how to hit third. He taught me how to hit fourth. He told me, he really taught me and understand how to hit in those positions. Um, he, he, he meant so much to me. What he did off the field, his, his big heart, his philanthropic side, who he was as an individual, his character, what he meant in the clubhouse. He was just the man and i remember and he was so loved i remember they announced him we're starting a game and out of nowhere when they announce his name he gets booed his very first at bat he's coming up and the fans boo him and i am shocked i'm like oh my god how, how are you booing move on like it honestly it was it crushed me so bad that i couldn't believe that move on got booed and i didn't understand it. and i was looking in the dugout like guys what's going on they're like oh no more you didn't read the paper and i'm like excuse me what they're like oh i don't know what maybe mo bond says whatever it was but the paper had the influence for these fans to boo mo freaking bond mm-hmm. you know and the next day he's hitting a walk-off home run or maybe that day he was and everything yeah they're cheering but it, i just couldn't believe that it had that much influence like really like it's freaking mo bond like i don't care what he, it's still him i don't like this is so that's always kind of stuck with me and and and, and still kind of it still scars me a little bit still to to see that because of what he meant to me and how I still look at him and view him. I'm like a little kid. Even now when I see him, I'm like this little kid wanting to suck up knowledge. I haven't seen him in so long, but that's what I feel every time I've seen him in, uh, every, every, every now and then. Yeah. Well, he was one of my favorite teammates too, man. And yeah. I, I used to love when we had our, not very often do we have like our little player only meetings, you know, but when Mo <laughs> would, when Mo would have a meeting, you know, he's like, all right, get out of here, coaches, get out of here and kick everybody out. And you just like talking and every other word was F word, this, F that. And like, this is the, like the biggest teddy bear guy. You know, oh. he would, he, I mean, he's the guy you want. If somebody ever, you know, threatens you, you're like, hey, do you know I'm president of on, right? <laughs> yes. You don't want to mess with move on. But we had like the ultimate respect. And we actually had other teammates on that those teams too, that I had a tremendous respect for Mike Stanley, oh, Tim Daring, Billy Hasselman. I mean, we had a great group of guys, great D Lou D Lou yeah. was just a pro. Somebody asked me about him the other day. It's like, this guy just comes to work every day. And I think that's why we, 
you know, we came up a little bit short, but uh, we had some pretty good teams, man. We did. We did. I, uh, shoot, I, yeah, it's some of the things I actually experienced in 99, which not many people know about when I, uh, when we got, when we got in 99 was probably one of my favorite teams uh, we had. I, there was something about that team. We were so close. Uh, we came up short. I remember losing like game five of the Yankees and stuff that year. And, um, <clears throat> but that was the year I got hit in the wrist and I missed, you know, I couldn't play one game and we went, but the stuff I was doing for the play was crazy. Um, uh, Sacred, like shots I was taking, some of the stuff I did for my wrist and everything, but I didn't care. It was all about, I love that team so much to do anything for those guys. Like you got, it was just, that's the way it was. You're right. All these guys, they meant we, 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 there was a special bond there. And, and uh, it's, it's funny is even later on and in the team that will win, that will won the world series, ultimately won the world series in 04, that team, we were so close in 03, 04. I was, you know, I know I get traded that year and stuff. And they talk about, oh, how many guys go out to dinner? All these, they have these team dinners, everybody, you know, more the, most of the guys there and, they're like, yeah, and they're talking about how close these teams are. And I was like, I said, do you guys, do you guys know where this started? And like, you don't even know the lineage that like this, you, what you guys have now and this reputation that Boston had about sticking together and do that started really like when Saberhagen always set up dinner. I mean, every time on the flight, Saberhagen's like, I got reservation. I got reservations at this steakhouse. That's how I learned about wine. I mean, right now people don't, I'm a huge wine guy. I mean, still to this day, like I probably could pass the first two levels of sommeliers test because of what you guys taught me about wine and those dinners and always invited me. But that's where it started. And when they left, it continued. We made sure we had, we made sure we did that. Everywhere it went, even the other teams that I ended up getting traded to, we did the same thing. I made sure that it was, that started really for the ultimate winning of the world series for boston mm -hmm. i remember we, uh, the place we used to go in kansas city we had like 18 players there one night and at toward the end of the night pedro and ramon bought this bottle of louis louis was it louis 14 yeah, or yeah. whatever yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. 1500 dollars or something yeah, like that nice. and everybody's got a shot of louis after we just had like steak and lobster and yeah I man remember. Yep. and I, I just don't think people give um enough credit to what having that team chemistry means it means a lot man it means everything and i just don't know that a lot of the people running teams right now realize the importance of that yeah i, I think some of the good teams I, you know i'm fortunate now i work for the dodgers and i get to see that they just won the world series they have it they actually do i see these guys i get to travel with them <clears throat> uh you know dave roberts has really instilled that kind of that uh environment and atmosphere mentality these guys do hang out away from the field they do have big dinners together they do all that so i, I get, i'm lucky enough to see that and these guys are really easy to cheer for and want to see them win i'm glad they finally won and do that because they definitely deserve it but because they had that they do have that kind of chemistry and pull for each other and mentality and and uh welcoming and and trying and striving to for excellence well you, did dave brought roberts bring that over from boston <clears throat> he may he may have either very well may have that might have been something that he saw and, and maybe instill. I never really asked him about that but um, you know he's been around a lot of good teams and good players and good managers too um, throughout his tenure and boy he, he's a good one well I want to I want to talk to you a little bit about the injuries um, because there was no doubt in my mind after the first eight years of your career that you were yeah you were on your way to the hall of fame man 
and oh, yeah. um i'm not saying that to be mean i just i just know that uh you were one of the best players in the game and the injuries that you had kind of derailed that a little bit now the wrist injury and what happened after that well the wrist injury <clears throat> the wrist injury was a big one um it's but you know even when you look at still numbers of what i did even after that uh they're pretty solid i mean i was still an all-star still um did some pretty uh pretty good things after that but it's there's there was some you know this game is everybody thinks it's a game of inches you always hear that term it's a game of inches no 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 it's less than that it's a game of millimeters it's a game of centimeters that's how much this game that's the difference off the barrel of your bat whether it's a hit or it's an out it's that small it's not um, I remember hearing, I think you might even talked about Chipper Jones talking about four inches is the most important part of your life in baseball because that's the sweet spot of a wooden bat is about four inches. And I was like, man, it's even less than that because difference is swinging a ball and it pops up or the swing uh, or you ground out compared to that being a line drive. I think <clears throat> the the my wrist injury, I wish I had certain technology that exists now, certain things just from cameras and biomechanics to notice if I was off just a hair for that when my bat's coming through the zone just a little bit compared to what was prior to me having my wrist injury and see if there was a way I could replicate and get that. Cause I think that's ended up some of the more, you know, me popping up a little more than I probably did early on in my career, maybe just missing it. <clears throat> and sometimes when you fall, fall off that ball, that was the ball you had. Like everybody thinks, oh, everybody always assume it's that last pitch or that that third strike. What do you swing at? What do you know? I'm like, no, no, no. It's the, it could be the first one where that was my opportunity to where a lot of times I was already standing on second base. I wouldn't even have to wait for that third pitch or fourth pitch or whatever. I was already there. So, or they're like, oh, you're swinging at the first pitch. Why did you swing? You popped up. I'm like, well, I was usually crushing that. And I actually hit a double off the wall usually. And I just missed it. And it was just a hair. And that's where the wrist probably could affect that. But even despite that, I still had... But the biggest thing, that was a big one, but the big ones were my legs. My legs were the biggest one because that's your power. That's your base. That's everything. Um, you feel the ground ball, not with your hands, but with your feet and your legs. That's what it's about. Your uh, your base when you're swinging the bat too. Um, I have I have a condition I still live with. Uh, I can't physically run. People don't know that I have. There's a genetic condition in my family. My sister probably has it. The worst is something people just don't know. Um, we don't know what... Uh, we're still studying. She's been suffering from stuff since she was 15. It's crazy. Um, but I, I, if I run for like a minute or two now, um, my calves will just tear. They just tear. They'll just, I'll run and they'll tear. So, uh, so this stuff is just genetics. Everybody's like, oh, um, the worst thing I always hear that probably hurts me is like, oh, steroids. He's this. He's playing steroids. I go, listen, I've never, ever, ever would have touched that. Are you kidding me? That's just so so wrong i can never disrespect the game but no it's just something that i live with and i'm actually grateful that i was able to play as long as i did uh but it's just stuff you have to deal with but um yeah it's uh i'm good i'm, I'm lucky but yeah it, it, injuries are a part of the game i always say look people hall of fame or whatever i didn't play for the hall of fame i played for the guys i played next to i played to get respect from your peers i played for the respect of this game that's why i played I had a lot of Hall of Fame years. It's up to you whether you thought I had a Hall of Fame career, but I know I had a lot of Hall of Fame years. I may not have had a Hall of Fame career, but that's okay because uh, I made up pretty darn good. I get to look around and see my kids and see, like I said, my wife who I'm way over my skis with. 
I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. It's funny. It's funny that you say the, the game of millimeters. I'll never forget this. I had, we were playing the Braves interleague game, interleague schedule, whatever. I think it was like one of the first years. And it's when we had to wear those old uh, throwback uniforms. Remember how horrible yeah. those things were? I remember. Yeah. Oh God, they were terrible. So I'm facing John Smoltz bases loaded in Fenway and a, you know, I'm not a home run hitter bases loaded, no outs. And John Smoltz throws me a three, two slider. And I, you know, I felt that's respect. And I freaking hit a rocket line drive right up the middle, right past his head. And in comes Kenny Lofton to make a diving sliding catch. Hattie was at third and we know Hattie's base running skills. Hattie <laughs> was about a third of the way to home plate when he caught the ball and couldn't get back in time to tag. And I'm like, Oh my God, I just had like an incredible at bat against a future hall of famer did everything right. Oh, for one, hang with him, Fry. You were hitting next. You hit a foul ball. I don't know if you remember this, but you hit a foul ball down the first baseline that the first baseman ran in foul territory and caught it. And it had he tagged up and scored. Up. I'm like, are you kidding me? No wonder he's freaking superstar. And I'm just a scrubini. Come on, Hattie. Uh, I'm so mad at Hattie. You should have bought more dinners, man. I took him to dinner. I bought him wine. I'm like, hey, man, that's, you know, you got to just teammates. That's why I remember that. Now. Yes, I totally remember that. Yeah. yeah and you, as a player, when you're in, you, you know, you look selfish, you're in the dugout, you say something. So I'm just like sitting here, just like glaring at Hattie going, freaking go. Oh, man. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Oh, never that forget classic. that. That is classic. Yeah. Oh, man. So what I know you had a, a game in the big leagues. We hit two grand slams, right? Yeah. Was that the game you had like 10 or 11 RBIs or something like that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Like that was a good RBIs, month for me. If I ever even yeah. got 10 in a month now, was it, was it off Randy Johnson or. No, it wasn't off Randy. I, you know, I can't remember all the guys that it ended up being with. It was kind of a blur uh time especially going through it first one hitting a grand slam and then hitting a home run and my last at bat i was like I, they could have thrown it anywhere i was swinging and i hit a grand slam uh but it getting reminded of that but it's uh yeah i had seen videos a bit sometimes people reminded like hey you know this anniversary and then i was like yeah i did it twice so i did another time on my birthday but but that one with the 10 rbis and the two grand slams that was uh that was big and i everybody's like talking about me and i go yeah, that's nothing. I said, I saw Bill Miller hit two grand slams in Texas, one from each side. I'm like, that was sick. Like, you wow. know, one game. And then I saw, and then I was talking about Fernando Tatis hitting two grand slams in one inning off the same pitcher. That's another. That's yeah. Still, How's that guy still in the game? Yeah. I'm like, come yeah. on. Chan Ho Park, wear it. Here you go, buddy. Uh, so, uh, but no, that was, uh, that was, a that was a fun night for sure. Yeah, so did you ever, you never really were a big uh, card player, were you? You know, it's funny. I, I didn't play like the big games. Some of you guys would play, but I would always play like casino with yummy, uh -huh. you know, Troy O'Leary. Uh, we would, uh, we would always play before, like in between batting practice when we were at Fenway in between, before we have to go out there, we'd have to like, kind of get a card. Like that was kind of our superstition. And then I would play on the plane a little bit with a few guys. I didn't, there were certain tables I knew early on that I needed to stay away with. And, uh, um, you know, I don't know if you remember, I don't know, if, you know, I was one who eventually had the tool and learned how to take out 
one of the little screws in the seats in the plane so it can go forward and make the table and stuff. So I would just, <laughs> I would do that, go on there early and do that. So to make sure our tables were set and set a few of them, but uh, no, but not 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 the big time card games that that you would that we got to experience uh, see, and I didn't want to be a part of that. Yeah, the, the Conseco one, man. I'll tell you real quick. <laughs> this one, so we're riding um, from what was it about twenty five minutes usually from Fenway to the airport, something like that. Yeah. Get, yeah. Sometimes we get a police escort and take like fifteen minutes, but that was pretty cool. And uh, so we're playing between the sheets, like me and. Conseco, Val, I think Hasselman and Naring or something. Was it Braggy? It bra probably Braggy. <laughs> he was always in there too. And so the, the pot's 3,500 bucks. This is a 20 minute bus ride. The pot is 3,500 bucks and it's my turn. And I get ace two between the sheets. You know, you got to pick the at the car, bet that the next car is between an ace and a two. And I'm like, 3,500 bucks, ace two. It's like the best hand you could possibly have. I'm like, 3,500. Ace came up. So, when it when you when you match you got to double the pot which was 3500 so i had to pay seven thousand dollars and i was making five thousand dollars every two weeks uh, my heart almost stopped <laughs> now the pot's ten thousand five hundred and i'm like oh my god i don't even have this much money what am i gonna do right so then it comes around to me again and it's my and conseco's dealing and now it's queen three and i'm like god this is a pretty good chance it's between there and i'm like and I look at Conseco, he's peeking at the cards and nobody sees him. He's like, don't do it. <laughs> and I said, all right, I can't do it. hundred queen. <laughs> it would have been $10,000 more. I didn't earn that in two years. <laughs> we had some, but, but I also did the, I also did the, I uh, carried a little socket set in one of those little uh, Oakley sunglass yeah. bags. As soon as you get on the plane and be like a race who could take these seats apart. And those flight attendants, boy, they hated us after those flights. <laughs> they, if we didn't put them back together. <laughs> Oh, the, yeah. So funny. Little things that we learned on these planes and everything. That's, oh, those were, that's what makes it so fun. I think, I think when people, when people ask myself and I'm sure they ask you if you're like, do you miss it? And, and, and those are the times you miss, you know, mm -hmm. those, those little moments, those card moments, those times, those dinners. Yes, you miss, but you're always going to miss it. But at the same time, that was what took it to that's what you were so grateful that you got to experience it at the highest level for that mm -hmm. do you remember what used to happen right as we were taking off in our plane what used to happen uh, when you some guys who would go down the middle of the row and slide down and do that on the uh, yeah you don't remember yeah. this you don't remember this right here yeah oh. Oh yeah, yeah mule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do that every time the plane would take off. I I learned that from Al Newman with the Rangers, and the plane's about to take off, and everybody start turning around. I'd be like, Yeah, yeah, yeah mule, get up, mule, <laughs> take us to Cleveland. We're ready to go to the flats. Or something. And we have a couple. Of, you'd see that. And we have a couple of guys white knuckling it because they hated flying and going. Oh up. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we had some great times on those flights. Well, I won't keep you much longer, Nomi, but I, I wanted to ask you about something that I didn't really realize until I was reading up on you yesterday doing some homework. But uh, And if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to. But uh, October 7th, 2005, you and Victor, your uncle, <laughs> heard some ladies <laughs> screaming, and uh, they had apparently fallen into the Boston Harbor. Would you talk about that? Yeah, so um, it was after the season. I was in Chicago. I 
came back. I had actually, I just sold my place there in Boston. It was, so I lived on a, I lived on a pier and basically the, my deck and my pier overhung the harbor. You, but I always say you could fish off my pier. I mean, off my deck of my house, not that you'd want to in the Boston Harbor, but right. just to kind of get perspective of, of how the view, the condo I live. Yeah. The view and the condo that I live and the water level. So in between the pier I lived on, there was another pier. So this was in the Navy yard. So you can imagine the big ships that would come in and they would, this is where they would repair the Navy yard. So there was a big, big space. Well, and the other pier, there was a tavern. It was called Tavern on the Water. I'd always hear drunk people kind of leaving that place and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, loud noise and stuff. And in between the piers, there was actually uh, boats were parked as docked. They were docked. And so, like I said, the water level would go up and down. And at night, usually the water level is pretty low. So it's about 30 feet down, 20 to 30 feet down from the pier. So if you can just imagine. Well, where I was actually packing up my place to I just pretty, pretty much just sold it. I was packing it. Mia was there. My dad was there. My uncle, my uncle was, he's my uncle. We grew up like brothers. He was like my older brother, but he lived with me in Boston, took care of me and looked after me when I was there. Um, and so it's late at night. Actually, I think the Red Sox had probably just finished. It was, it was kind of like getting toward night. They kind of had that midday kind of playoff game. And, uh, I heard these two girls kind of leaving and they were kind of leaning over the side of the pier. There's like these big pipes and my uncle goes, they're going to fall. I'm like, come on, they're not going to fall. There's not whatever. We hear this all the time. Right. And we're just kind of looking out and sure enough, a girl goes over the side all the way down and into the water. And I, and you know, they're, they're intoxicated. You know, they've been drinking. I bolt. I just sprint out my door. I'm at, we're at the bottom floor. I sprint out my door and I just start chucking it down because there's this tiny little gate with this ramp to get down to this dock. And so I probably run about 50 yards down to the end of mine. Then it's probably like another 30, 40 yards and another 50 to get there. But in the meantime, the second girl leans over and she goes in the water and she hits the, she hits the, the, the dock on the bottom she hits that and goes in the water oh my gosh. well my uncle my uncle then dives off the dives off the deck into the water to go swim over there to try to save them because i because i saw she's down and i'm like they're they're underwater so i get to this this door and it's locked so i'm like okay how, well that ramp there's probably about a good five ten feet away between the, a gap for that ramp and where I am on the edge of the pier. So I decided to say, oh, well, I'm jumping and see, hopefully I land in the middle of this ramp. And I do. So I just jump, I scale it. I'm like 20 feet up. I'm not even thinking. And I, I, I rush down there in the meantime. So I get down there and now I'm thinking I got to go in the water. I'm trying to find these girls. Well, I see these hands kind of holding on barely to the side of the, the, the dock. 
And I'm like, they're not going to hold out much longer. Right. So I grab, I'm holding onto their hands and there's two of them and I can't, I can't pull them out myself. In the meantime, I got my uncle swimming over. He's swimming. He's finally getting there. I'm, I beat him there. Right. And so he's great. Cause he's like, and he, I see him trying to get out of it. Cause you know, the dock's a little high. So he's trying to lift himself out of the water. He's smart. He sees his boat and he pulls kind of the ladder down and uses the ladder to get up. And I see him, I'm now I'm holding the girls and I look at my uncle. He's on all fours. He's soaking wet. And he looks at me and he's huffing and puffing and he's looking at me and he looks at me he goes i always wanted to do that <laughs> <laughs> and i go dude i go come over here man help me out so he comes over he helps me we lift these girls out in the meantime mia runs over to the tavern and he's she's telling them so hey listen uh two girls just fell in the harbor they're like no they didn't she's like yeah they did because my husband's out there saving them right now you know <laughs> and so in the meantime they have the key to this gate they have it so now i'm walking these girls up right the, the ramp to get them uh to get them up to the top and they open up the gate and we get there and uh it's funny because <laughs> the one girl is looking in her purse i don't know how it's still kind of around her shoulder i'm like how does this purse still around the shoulder and she's looking and she like she turns it over and all this water just falls out like i'm like she's looking for her cell phone or something i'm like it's not gonna happen sweetheart yeah and this one girl is she's so intoxicated and she just goes i know who you are you know my Garcia Para. I can't believe you stuck around. No and I'm way. like, I'm like, oh, sweetheart, <laughs> lucky for you, I did. She goes, and I know who you are. You're Mia Hamm. She goes, I played soccer. Look, kick, kick. Oh, it's, we're like now. I'm like, I'm dying laughing. I'm not gonna lie. It's kind of funny, right? In the meantime, her friend is sitting down, and she's got this big, massive goose egg on her head because that's what she hit on the way down. Yeah. And kind of like in a shirt you can tell like also in her back too like she has and my uncle's trying to help her because my uncle was an emt at one time too so he just wants to have a look and she was like no part of it so in the in the meantime uh they the tavern knew who they were and they called i don't know one of the husbands or something like that and i remember the guy pulling up and and the girl one girl still kind of just talking i can't believe we fell in the harbor she's saying i just can't believe we fell in the harbor and uh <laughs> so then he it, it's funny because the husband gets there he gets out of his car and he looks and then he recognizes me and he just like goes oh man and then the other girl's still talking and he's just like shut up and get in just get in get in and they go off and they whisk off they go, um, I, I told them too, I'm like, you might want to take them to the hospital. Like just, and they, they take off. So, and then the next day I remember I had, me and I flew out early morning and it might've been two days later. And then my uncle, I was getting all these texts and all this stuff. And, um, and I was like waking up, I was like, why are all, all these texts? What's going on? And I called Victor. I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he goes, have you not looked at the news? I'm like, what? It's all over the news. And I'm like, what happened? And he's like, oh, us, you know, jumping in the harbor and all that stuff. And I go, uh, he goes, he goes, Nomar, there's news trucks outside the door. There's a helicopter flying around. There's all this. What do I do? And I said, ah, better you than me. And I went, click. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so uh, but the crazy thing is about all that. So that, that, that happened. And the real nut crazy thing is a few years later, I'm playing with the Dodgers and we are going to, you know, we're visiting like the Walter Reed, the Pentagon you know, we, uh, Center over there and we're playing in DC. And so, you know, there's a bunch of us, we're getting escorted. So you have military personnel kind of escorting. And I'm kind of walking back in the group as we're getting escorted through the hospital and also the Pentagon and stuff. 
And so uh, one of the general, the, the Marine in the back goes, hey, listen, um, uh, I got to thank you. And I'm like, thank me. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I got to thank you for all your yeah. service. Thank you for what you do. He's like, no, 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 no. He goes, you remember a couple of years ago, a few years ago when you saved a couple of girls in the harbor? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, one of those was my sister. No, <laughs> oh, goes, wow. no way. He's like, yeah. I go, oh, she's like, oh, they're fine. I'm like, oh my God, we never heard from them. I'm like, yeah, they're good. He's like, yeah, it makes a great story for Christmas, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, man. but uh but at the same time, yeah that was that was kind of cool too that was kind of crazy but yeah that was that's that's the story of what we uh that that night <laughs> yeah I'm, i can only imagine the, around christmas time they were going yeah tell the story about noma how you jumped in the harbor and saved you <laughs> i love the way they talked in boston they park your car in the yard yeah hey, but you know what i also got it i mean thank you i know you're talking about me but man what you're doing now too all the stuff that you got. I mean, you got a lot going on. You got your podcast. I see you on social media, your Twitter, you're, you're talking about this game, talking about the way it is, trying to help kids out from hitting and, and what they're going through. I mean, what's inspired you to do all that? I made one silly video just so I could beat my, my producer and, yeah. and followers on Twitter. It's all no, my I fault. just, <laughs> it's funny, Nomi. I, uh, me and a couple of scout buddies, you know, we always send each other, in a group text, uh, these silly things we see drills and stuff. And so I put one on social media and it just blew up and they really came after me and started mean, hateful, calling my kids names and all that. And they don't know me very well. You know me. And all that did was, <laughs> all that did was inspire me. But I mean, I love this game. This game gave me a, you know, an incredible life. And, and, you know, I've loved this game since I was a little boy and I don't like the direction it's headed. And I, you know, I know growing up what I loved about it and just the action and the, you know, just the, the strategy and, and, you know, having different players with different roles and, and everybody's different and everybody can make it. That was the thing about baseball. You don't have to be six foot four to play baseball. You can be a little guy and make it. And I still believe that, but I don't believe that a five foot six guy should train to hit a baseball like a six foot eight guy. And I think we have to everybody's individual and we just got to teach the basic fundamentals to kids. And that's, <clears throat> that's basically, you know, what I'm trying to get across to people. No, I agree. I mean, I, yeah, there's certain things you see in this game. You see the, the misconceptions out there. I call it, you know, it's the misinterpretation of the data that exists right now. You know, I used to think about, Oh, analytics and you hear analytics is ruining the game. I said, it, they just it, analytics has always been around. It's always called data. So it's still there. I said, the problem is not the data. The problem is the misinterpretation of the data. I said, that's what's really the flaw in, in today's game. And, and those that have the influence up there, they're misinterpreting it incorrectly and not recognizing it. And um, that, I think that, that needs to change. And, and I really hope, you know, like I even start preaching and I talk, I mean, obviously on a pre and post game show, I'm talking about now uh, data when I talk about hitting and understanding it. I think what the disconnect right now is when they call old school and new school, um, there really is a disconnect there. There shouldn't be old school and new school. If you're new school or believe that analytic, then your flaw is, is you don't know how to then quantify old school. I said, if you really want to be successful at what you do from the data analytics situation is you better be able to quantify what an old school thought is because that's truly the success and those who know. 
and they don't know and they that's where the disconnect is whether they feel like they're it's going to show them that they're wrong or they're not smart enough or they have to do whatever it is um but but i always say understanding where and i and i even teach this to kids now and to parents now is if you don't even know the data or understand it then then why are you following it why are you doing that because um you really have to understand it first before you have somebody preaching it to you and saying that's the way, because that's not how it is, because you don't even know if they're interpreting it properly either. And, and that's, that's really, really important for them. I said, really, the only thing you need to make sure is you make contact. Your hitter make contact. That's important just because actually the data shows, and this is analytics and all that stuff, they know if you're a swing and miss guy, you don't change when you get to the big leagues. I was talking to a scout. They said he made his analytic department go search, go do me a favor, go search for 40. They went back 40 years and looked at guys who were swinging miss guys in the minor leagues. And if they got better in the big leagues and, you know, they found one guy who actually was better, who was not, who all of a sudden was not a swing and miss guy as much. He was in the big leagues compared to the minors one in 40 years. And his name was Barry Bonds. (laughs) That's it. And so he's like, so hello. So why are we still continuing to, he, he was going, shaking his head. Why do we keep continuing up calling up these guys who are swinging miss guys? Why do we keep calling up like here? You, you can't re, they're rewarding the wrong things and not recognizing that. And that's once again, the misinterpretation of the data, just like we were talking about me and uh, swinging at the first pitch, misinterpretation of the data. Uh, it was all about on base percent. Like all of a sudden they said, we got to, we got to replace somebody. So it's all about on base percentage. So if it's on base percentage, you know what you have to do? You have to take like, that's not what you have to do. That's a misinterpretation. Yeah. On base percentage, getting on base is important. And actually it depends on where you're hitting in the lineup. I'd rather have a high on base percentage of certain guys in the lineup, but I'm not worried about a high on base percentage of guys who are three and four hitter. I want them to drive guys in and know how to handle the bat and do some stuff. That's a little bit different. And so they didn't recognize it. So they're telling everybody to take. And I'm like, okay, but I was, I know numbers. We can talk numbers all day, but I go, once again, 333 on the first pitch. Uh, apparently you're missing that data. Mm-hmm. I go, so um, like, here's another, I would talk to these guys, analytic guys all the time. I said, another one. So parents really want to understand stuff is, did you, there, this guy was talking about analytics. Did you know that at any level, little leagues, to the big leagues, that if you, if the pitcher gets strike one, he analytic, like, he, according to the data, he becomes Nolan Ryan in that at bat. Statistically, becomes Nolan Ryan if he gets strike one. Oh, one, he becomes Nolan Ryan. So now, the, at any level, you're facing Nolan Ryan. If the hitter gets one oh, he statistically becomes Ted Williams at every le- at any level. So guess what? The first pitch is the most important pitch of the bat. If you're telling me, if I'm looking at these numbers, right? But they're not talking about that. They're not interpreting it that way. And that's once again the misinterpretation. So. I mean, I can talk for hours about this, but I really just hope these, you know, what they're, you know, want the misinterpretation of launch angle. Listen, you still, no matter what, you just change the name. You can't have an uppercut. And launch angle is just a data point. It's not, you're not, you don't, you, you don't, it's not something you're trying to strive for. That's just a data. And then you got to recognize how they get the data too. It's not off, it's not a round bat from a round ball that's hitting each other. It's actually a data point, a round ball hitting a flat wall and measuring it, how it bounces off that. That's how they measure launch angle. So they're not even factoring in this other stuff. So it's not like, hey, we're getting incredible accurate data. So 
yeah, I just, I just hope these parents really just understand that that's, you got to be data informed, not data driven. I heard a great, great, smart man executive say that he goes, I'm data informed, but I'm not data driven. And parents need to recognize that. And with all this data, with all this new technology that's out there, parents are going to have to start realizing this one thing is that eventually scouts are going to realize this. There's going to have, you are now going to have a profile of all these young kids. You're going to have, you know what they did. And we see it, you see it. I see tweeted out there. You see what these guys did in these travel teams, right? You see their numbers, you see the score scorecard. Well, guess what? That ain't going anywhere. That's staying with you. And now a scout can actually go back and look to see if a kid was a swing and miss guy at eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, and see if that pattern followed them all the way up. And scouts are now recognizing this. When you and I played, we used to, it was told to us, and you, you knew it when scouts would look at guys like, we couldn't teach arm velocity. We can't teach velocity. So get the guy who throws hard, but we'll teach you how to pitch. We can't teach this guy to hit a ball 500 feet, but we can teach him how to hit. We'll be able to see if we make contact. We can do that. So they would take the big guys. They would take the guy with the arm, and then they realized that they can't teach him that. They can't teach that. They can't teach a guy feel with a curveball. They can't teach him to throw strikes. They can't teach this guy who can hit a ball 500 feet, but that we can teach him to hit. Well, guess what? Now, the one thing they always thought they couldn't teach as far as strength, they actually can teach now. They can actually now, the, with science and humans are just getting bigger and stronger just in general. You know, what used to be taboo when we came up, you and I, we worked out and it was still taboo. What do you middle infielders? I mean, that's what everybody criticized me. Like, you guys getting big, you can't, you know, we're supposed to work out. Now everybody works out. Everybody does what we do. They work out and they're, they're huge. Well, and guess what? Everybody can hit a ball 500 feet now. So I can teach you to do that. But what I can't teach you is to make contact. And now scouts are recognizing we need a guy who makes contact because we'll get you stronger. And they haven't moved the fences back yet. So we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. We just need to make you, to, we need you to make yeah. it stronger. I mean, uh, we need you to make contact because we realize we can't teach that. So parents, that's the most important thing you have to worry about. Make contact, consistently contact. That's it. Not exit velocity of it. Make contact. Don't strike out. Don't walk back to the dugout. Because what? guess what? Scouts now have that information and they're going to be starting to look at it. And the other thing, it's not fun. And I want the kids to have fun so they can be, continue to play this game and love it and be a fan even if they stop playing have fun playing this and don't take that away from them yeah wow. well nobody's been listening to me for the last year but i sure hope they listen to you because uh, <laughs> i mean i've been preaching a lot of that same stuff and yeah. i think there's you know there's a there's got to be a balance just use all the information okay but let's not let it affect the strategy of this game or what we're going to do on this play based on what might happen over 162 game season well, Jeff, that's tonight, another thing. Tonight, we yeah. need to leave Snell in the game. In the, yes. Well, okay. Well, I'm again. sure the Dodgers were happy they took yeah. him out, but that boy was dealing. <laughs> no more. Why did they take him out? Data driven and data informed. What, what's the difference right exactly. there? Exactly. Right? Data informed, data driven. And, and you're right. I mean, that's where, and, and that's the other thing I wanted, I always tell, uh, I, I tell parents too. When I ask them to interpret what is launch angle, what does that mean? And they're saying, well, it's, you know, based on a certain launch, you know, angle coming off the bat, you know, as far as percentage of a hit, everything that does that. And I said, okay, yeah, okay, I get that. Because the higher percentage of a hit based on this certain wherever ball comes off bat or off from home plate, I said, okay. I said, do you know where that data was 
collected from? They look at me like, what, excuse me? I said, you're teaching your eight-year-old about this based off data collected at the highest level. So that means that, yeah, it's that high because guess what? Those hitters are facing the freaking best infield in the world. Basically, the best players in the world are playing first, second, short, third. They're playing the best in the world. So they're collecting, yeah, if a ball gets hit, most likely on the ground, it gets taken away for a hit. But your child's not facing the Los Angeles Dodgers. Your child's not facing the Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees. That's what your child's not facing. So why is he trying to go for that? <laughs> it doesn't matter. So don't even worry about that. Worry about just putting the ball in play and have fun. So when you reach base, you can run around the bases. That's fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I get a kick out of them saying, well, just copy and do what the greats do. And I, I've yeah. used you as an example before. I'm like, uh, you know, I couldn't have hit like no more. You know, I wish I could have. I watched him hit. Too. I could have probably emulated him. Thanks, John. I could have emulated him. You know, I'd like, you know, I used to imitate guys goofing around, but this is the, you know, you learned to hit this way your whole life. And this is what you became at, you know, as a grown man. And I learned to hit the way I hit my whole life. I can't just now all of a sudden copy the way somebody else does and be as good at it as he, as he is. And by teaching kids to hit like Barry Bonds or these guys, it, to me, it's a, it's a huge misservice to these poor kids. They need to play, play the game to have fun because the, the oh odds gosh. are just not good that they're going to ever make to the level that well, we made it. What's so funny is that you say that. I, I tell parents two things on that. Is I go, you know, in order to make it to the big leagues, you got to love it. You have to love it. I go, I, shoot, my brother played in the minor leagues, and my brother was a stud soccer player played football, played soccer, um, could have played, went to scholar, college scholarships in those three. And, uh, he, and he ended up getting drafted in baseball and he was going to play. And he, I was a baseball player who could play soccer. My brother's a soccer player who could play baseball. That was the difference. And he's like, I go, he goes, what advice? What do you think? No, Marsh, I go pro. Should I sign? What do you think? I said, I don't care. I go, if you're going to go pro, you better make sure one thing. Oh, you got to love it. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. You got to love it. And he loves it now. And he says, you were right. He goes, that's probably why I probably didn't make it a big because I didn't love it the way you said. You were so right. And I said, it's about love, loving it. I go, so at the lung, uh, so I tell parents, if it's really about loving the sport, then make sure they love it. At the same time, while that you also have to make sure that they don't get more out, burn out on it either. You're a parent. I oh, said, my child, loves, my child loves cake but I don't give it to them for breakfast every morning because even though they love it, they say, I love it, but I'm a parent. I'm supposed to say, no, you can't have cake every day. And then I tell a parent, if I gave my child cake every day, at one point is my child going to say, I don't love cake anymore. I hate <laughs> this. So you're doing this in this sport that you say they love. So don't do that to them. You have to be a parent. You have to reel them back. You have to be able to relax them, play other things, do other things. But first and foremost, you have to love it and, uh, and, and instill that in them more than anything that you love of the game. And then the other thing about imitating a big leaguer, I had one kid who was trying to hit and he was struggling, he kept missing. I was working with him, brought his hands down, all this stuff. And then he was hitting, then he left and dad came back. I said, why is his hands back up? Well, he wants, he, he sees Mike Trout do that and he wants his hands up there. And I said, got it. I called him over and I said, oh, you want to see my, you see Mike Trout is best around. I'm like, yeah. I said, well, listen, when you get forearms as big as Mike Trout, then you can exactly put your hands up there and do that. But right now, your forearms are not Mike Trout. Right. <laughs> so it's yeah. just simple as that. 
you can't emulate some of these guys. And even in the big leagues, you guys, they don't even know who they're supposed to emulate. I go, body comp, the way your body's built and everything matters. And you have to recognize where you fit in. Mm-hmm. You got to be you. I mean, some guy, and I tell people this all the time. I was like, big leaguers have it. They have the it factor. You can't yeah. teach the it factor. Sorry. You can want it as, as bad as you want it, but you can't teach it. And some people just have it. And you had it, Nomi. I didn't have it. I had an I. I didn't have a T, but you had it. <laughs> what? Time out. Time out. There is no way. There is no way you could have ever stepped on a big league field if you didn't have it. Yeah, I agree. There's that. no way. So you can't. You can't say you didn't have. Listen, I mean, look at the percentage of guys who actually make it. Look how yeah. many. I mean, when you think about it, the amount of big leaguers. What's even crazier? Uh, Jerry Harrison told me this couple he told me this a few years ago and this was a few years ago he says do you know how many big leaguers have ever played this game who have actually put on and quote go down as a big leaguer go down just put on that uniform for one day he says that you know that it doesn't even fill some of these basketball arenas yeah it's rare. less than think twenty thousand. Less than twenty thousand. Yeah, exactly. When you think about it, it doesn't fill up. That means they can bring every big leaguer back that's ever played this game. Ever. That were, imagine that we were we can literally hang out and have a party in a freaking basketball arena, and it's just us. And nobody's waiting outside. They're all inside. Yeah. Well, Nomi, this has been awesome, man. It's it's great catching up with you. Um, you're one of my favorite teammates ever. I'm not just saying that because you're on the show, but uh, yeah, he is. I, I always admired the way you played the game, 100%. You were a team player and a great teammate, and um, I appreciate you taking the time to come on with us today. Well, I really appreciate you actually just reaching out to me. Are you kidding me? Um, uh, I can't thank you enough for thinking of me, for having me. Uh, you know, you've always – it was so great playing with you. I mean, you're like a brother and to me, and what I learned from you, um, what you taught me, uh, I know it's an integral part of my growth and my career, uh, but um, I just can't thank you enough. I love what you're doing now, everything, the message you're going out there. I think it, it comes from the places that you just truly do love this sport and this game and what it's given to us uh, in our lives and our family. So I, I get it. I, I encourage it. Keep going, sending the message because this sport has been great to us. But, but thank you, brother. I appreciate everything. Heck yeah, Nomi. And, and thanks a lot, John. Yeah, man, great. Hey, Nomar, very nice to meet you. Uh, good luck. Uh, tell the family hi and uh, get out there, and I appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks, John. I appreciate it. All right, this is Jeff Fry signing off. She Gone Nation podcast. She Gone. She Gone. This has been the She Gone Nation podcast. Thanks for listening. For more fun merchandise or videos, go to SheGoneHitting.com. That's SheGoneHitting.com. And follow us on Twitter. We are at SheGonePod. That's at SheGonePod. Thanks again for listening.